Good afternoon. It's uh, Friday the 9th of September 2022, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Com News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me by video link, we've got Alex Thompson and Vanessa Bailey. And hopefully, hopefully in a minute or two, uh, Patrick Henningsen will join us as well. Uh, this may be a little shorter program than usual, but anyway, we will start off uh, straight away, of course, with, uh, with the Queen, uh, who passed away, as everybody will know, yesterday. And... Uh, uh, well, that's, of course, devastating news for many people around the uh, country. Um, but, uh, you know, in the meantime, various things have happened. Uh, uh, strikes have been called off. The uh, postal worker strike has been called off. Uh, the real worker strike has been called off uh, and so on. Uh, now, Alex, uh, it's expected that uh, uh, Prince Charles will be officially declared king. I mean, he's king now, uh, but uh, the official declaration will be at the weekend. Uh, but it seems a bit unclear about who exactly is going to make that declaration uh, because, uh, well, unfortunately, the Queen passed away before uh, there was a, a new membership of the Privy Council or former uh, membership of the Privy Council. So although uh, um, there is a Lord President, uh, it may be that she's not actually uh, yet sworn in. This is going to be an extremely tricky one, Mike, quite apart from everyone's emotions and the fact that it's a lifetime ago since the Queen uh, or since the last sovereign acceded to the throne. There is this question of, to use a word that isn't used in this level much, quorate. Is the Accession Council, which is a, a subset of the Privy Council, amplified with a few surprising people, not just the great office holders of the state, but also people representing the City of London through its governing body, the corporation, um, are they going to have a quorum to be able to proclaim the sovereign? The individual senior civil servant, at least the last time I knew a few years ago, who was uh, going to be the organiser and uh, technically the, uh, the chairman of that accession council was Richard Tilbrook, whom I used to know and work well with when he was at the cabinet office and I was an intelligence officer. And you see that the deep state really does come to the fore at these sensitive and crucial moments, because this is a step beyond the Privy Council. The Privy Council, of course, is this undifferentiated collection of all the Crown's powers, judicial, legislative and executive, operating through orders in council. You are in it for life. There's an uh, oath of secrecy that a couple of dissident politicians and bishops have leaked. And within that is this accession council. And there's two parts of this accession council. The first part is, as I say, these office holders and city gents and senior civil servants. And then once they've agreed who the king is, all the, un the irregular shuffle out and the regular privy, privy councillors come in and they're then joined by, I haven't even seen yet whether his regnal name is going to be Charles III or George VII. Well, the, B it, the BBC is, is saying well, it will be Charles III. Well, that to me is the icing on the cake, uh, because uh, not just conservative uh, and Christian people, but anyone with an eye to Britain's history will know that the last two Charleses really wrought havoc on the land, England and Scotland, before the Union of Parliaments. But there was a Union of Crowns already, and both ended up waging war with the people. Uh, it's quite unthinkable what uh, the late uh, Prince Philip and the late Her Majesty were thinking when they named their son Charles, knowing that he was the heir and knowing our history so well. And I'm afraid a few people in my parents' generation were already saying, although they were loyal to the crown, what are they playing at? And, you know, my father, in many decades of his life, has not wanted to sing the national anthem for that very reason. The key issue is, has the Queen lived up to her coronation oath? Extremely sensitive for people, particularly on the day after her death, 
but I cannot give an unqualified yes to that, although I do immediately have to add any other incumbent who we could reasonably have foreseen would probably have lived up to it even less. Nevertheless, she hasn't lived up to her coronation oath. Well, and indeed, uh, I think uh, the bigger question for today is whether uh, Charles will, lead up, uh, will live up to his coronation oath and indeed what his coronation oath might actually say. Uh, because as we're going to come on to a little later, despite the fact that Parliament isn't going to be sitting, it seems like certain things are going to be done. Um, and uh, so the question is, will there be any kind of amendment or attempt to amend the Coronation Oath Act? Because the Coronation Oath, uh, which causes the monarch to, or requires the monarch to, to look after the sovereignty of the people and look, at, look after the laws and customs of the people, uh, it is uh, a statute in its own right. The words are, are formed within that statute. And so theoretically, they shouldn't be able to be changed. We have more work to do on this, which was already ongoing before Her Majesty sickened and died with some long-term authors. But without wanting to give a history lecture in a lunchtime news, yes, England is well known uh, in, in uh, distinction to Scotland, where both sides of the Civil War were effect effectively royalist. England did go Republican under Cromwell, but it's less well known that at the end of the century, in a more Dutch fashion, and with a Dutch king imported eventually, in 1688, in a certain sense, England did, did become a de facto republic in that from then on, the coronation and the crown itself was given on condition of pledging to govern us according to our laws and customs. There's always been changes to it, but the basic wording with a couple of changes, like no longer having to repute, repudiate Roman Catholicism as from Edward VII onwards, that's set by even above statute level, that's treaty level. Parliament couldn't amend it even if it wanted to, and it would take coordination between all the realms. So with, even within the basic level of, is the coronation oath going to be sworn in its, in its current form, other which, without which there's not a valid king? Uh, that, that's a whole minefield, you know, and uh, King Charles, as he now is, de facto and de jure, is, is has several times over proven himself constitutionally unqualified to govern. He's not interested in the Christian side of the role, although he pretends to be a Christian. He's, he's not interested in living up to the historic expectations of a sovereign and particularly not the post-1688 understanding of the crown bound by law. He's impeccably well-schooled in the Constitution, don't get me wrong, but his whole life and his words and actions have shown otherwise. And there may be some very different kind of coronation uh, arranged, both in the optics, uh, the, uh, the religious content and also in the wording. So the question is then, what kind of king is he going to be? So uh, many people describe him, describing him as the activist king. And let's not forget uh, that, of course, he um, jointly with Klaus Schwab launched uh, the Great Reset. And Patrick, welcome to the pro program. Uh, I, I wonder if you've got any thoughts on the fact that uh, uh, our new king, Charles, uh, was, is so deeply ingrained in this globalist agenda. Uh, and uh, as as to be one of the people that launched the Great Reset in the first place. I think you're muted. Yeah. Uh, no, right. Look, we're, we're, we'll have to we'll have to uh, move on while while you try to sort that out. I'm afraid we can't hear you at the moment. Um, so. Uh, Anyway, just to remind ourselves of, uh, of the types of things that uh, Charles was saying uh, at the launch of the Great Reset, or uh, let's just have a look at this short piece of video. We have no alternative because otherwise, unless we take the action necessary, 
and we build uh, again in a greener and more sustainable and more inclusive way, then we will end up having more and more pandemics and more and more disasters from ever, ever accelerating global warming and climate change. So this is the one moment, as, uh, as you've all been saying, when we have to, 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 to make uh, as much progress as we can. So, you know, absolutely steeped in the Green New Deal. And we shouldn't forget that actually his links to the uh, World Economic Forum go right back uh, many, many decades. So uh, this was the annual meeting of 1992. Um, Vanessa, have you any thoughts on, uh, on what type of king we have? Well, I mean, we have a completely um, absorbed into WEF, the Great Reset. Um, I mean, Alex is far more qualified to comment than I am, but it's it's um, it's not heralding a very bright future, as far as I can see. Yeah. Okay. And uh, Patrick, let's try and see if you're back. Uh, can you hear me? Okay. Yes, we can hear you now. So, uh, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, this is a big break from uh, the past monarch, uh, who wasn't really that active or engaged uh, in in much politically. Uh, uh, Charles has taken it to a completely different level. He's coming uh, into the role, having already established uh, an agenda. And if you look at what's going on around you right now with regards to uh, the energy crisis, uh, the perfect storm, uh, the sort of downgrading and deindustrialization of of Europe, effectively, uh, right now, we'll talk about that more uh, in a couple of minutes. Um, but Charles is uh, really, in, the timing is quite uncanny. Um, if he is coming into this role, he would then provide the uh, sort of steering and the leadership to calm the public down and sort of join up uh, the government with this new um, uh, great reset agenda. I don't know quite what to recall, what to call it at this point, but you're looking at bankrupting uh, tens of millions, potentially households um, in the UK, in Europe, um, even more. Uh, as a result of this runaway uh, inflation, artificially inflated um, energy market. Uh, and nobody, of course, as we'll point out, is uh, no bureaucrats, no politicians are actually addressing the cause of this. They're only sort of making excuses about um, things to blame it on, for instance, Russia or climate change. And this is where Prince Charles would step in um, to help sort of guide that conversation. So if he becomes politically active, uh, in his role as king during this, quote, time of crisis, um, that would be quite an extraordinary thing to uh, for us to witness as we've seen this uh, unfolding over the last couple of years. Yes. Uh, and uh, Alex, just finally on this, uh, you know, Patrick has used this uh, this phrase politically active. Uh, I noticed that in the, in the commentary on this, people very carefully careful to suggest say that he wouldn't be politically active, but they're meaning that in the context of getting involved in directly in politics. But of course, what we're talking about here is policy, which is really a layer above politics. This is the key to uh, Charles's long activism. And for a few years, when there were slight disclosures of these letters before they were sealed up again, uh, ministries and departments did release some of these supposed uh, so-called spider letters in which uh, Charles was angrily in his own handwriting, insisting that policy be changed, not the law, not the pillars of the constitution, but that's in his father's style, something ought to be done about this, shooting his mouth off or rather firing his pen off. 
Uh, and I'm afraid the British people and their constitutional settlement does seem to be very low down his pecking order, precisely because he is a policy and a big thinking man. So I did run a poll last night on my Telegram channel, which has had 440 votes so far, on whether we would lose both or either the monarchy or the union during Charles III's reign. And over half, 56% of respondents, said that we would lose both the monarchy and the union. And rather tellingly, the next most popular option at 19% is that while we would keep the monarchy, we would lose the union. And I'm afraid that some of my subscribers, by no means the most unschooled people around, uh, did post in response, we don't know what you mean by the union. Now, isn't that quite telling? Uh, well, indeed it is. OK, well, let's move on to the uh, issue of energy. And of course, we've shown this graphic a couple of times. Now, this is uh, the, the uh, price cap situation in the UK. So uh, the April 2022 uh, price cap, if you remember, was 1,971. Uh, the uh, October 22 uh, price cap was supposed to go up to 3,550. But Liz Truss, as we mentioned on uh, Wednesday's programme, but she announced it formally yesterday, has decided to uh, cap that uh, at £2,500 uh, and until uh, 2024. So what that effectively means is that uh, while households will be paying uh, everything that's on the left-hand side of the light blue line there, the government will be paying everything that's on the right-hand side of the light blue line there. So that's uh, likely to be uh, in excess of 100, certainly, uh, certainly in excess of 100 billion, probably around 150 billion pounds uh, of uh, money. Uh, going directly to the energy companies. Um, here's what uh, Liz had to say. Uh, this intervention is expected to curb inflation by up to five percentage points, uh, bringing a reduction in the cost of servicing government debt. Uh, this is just absolute weasel words. They take on massive amounts of extra government debt, uh, and then they claim that it will curb inflation by up to five, well, I mean, zero is up to 5%. Uh, this is, uh, you know, uh, advertising language here. Um, but in the meantime, then, she, of course, needs to address the energy crisis. And so she has decided uh, that she is going to uh, uh, reintroduce uh, the or lift the moratorium on fracking uh, in the UK. Now, this was, of course, uh, the one of the major campaigns that Ian Crane ran for many years up until his passing. Uh, and uh, the, this actually the graphics that you're seeing on screen at the moment come from his uh, his video series, Fracking Nightmare. Uh, so uh, uh, energy guarantees being created, uh, but uh, fracking will be back uh, alongside uh, re-energizing, uh, excuse the pun, uh, the North Sea oil and gas and so on. Um, so look, I'm going to say that uh, Ian was a fantastic campaigner on the issue of fracking for many, many years. Uh, he was producing the Fracking Nightmare program uh, regularly. Um, if anybody would like to uh, consider taking over that role, um, we would like to hear from you because uh, um, I think that is uh, that is going to be a requirement. Uh, Patrick, this is uh, uh, devastating for a, a small uh, population dense country like the UK. Yeah, yeah. Look, uh, the, the whole fracking conversation, as you know, the, the Tories uh, and various pressure groups have been lobbying for years um, to uh, basically open up the UK for fracking um, and unsuccessfully uh, due to the efforts of Ian and uh, a ragtag group of activists and Jerry activists and everybody held off uh, the richest man in the world, um, Jim Ratcliffe, uh, in his endeavors in Enios. Okay, so now the 
Now it's become a national security issue. Notice the language uh, that the government is now using, that Liz Truss is trying to marshal in her Thatcherite uh, impression. This is a, now a national security issue. And notice also the legislation to come down hard on protests uh, in the last few months uh, during yes. this course of this last year. That is no coincidence. The timing is absolutely locked in to this very issue here. And so notice also, and we did report on this in the previous weeks, that Britain does have a little trade going for LNG, and it's for the export market. They're shipping it uh, uh, to the continent, okay? So uh, gas is arriving at uh, from Qatar and places like this, being converted in Croydon, and then under the uh, uh, sub-channel uh, pipeline to Belgium, et cetera. A little bit of a profit, taking a little bit of, you know, skimming a little bit on top. So if fracking does come online, and I'm and, and mind you, that it will be years for that industry to develop into anything like a kind of reliable pipeline. You're talking about five to 10 years, okay, from now. Um, and even then, it's you, you're going to see them tr wanting to fetch the highest price for uh, per cubic meter for that fractured uh, hydraulically fractured gas. And that is going to be for the export market. Uh, you can probably take that to the bank. So all this talk about Britain needs to be energy independent and all this sort of stuff. Um, at the end of the day, it comes down to where the city of London is going to get the best price, where the middlemen are going to be flogging their wares uh, for, and it's going to be probably in Europe. Okay. So that's just, that's food for thought between all the rhetoric and everything, just understand the realities of that industry. And it's not a stable industry, hasn't been. The only reason it's it's uh, found new life now is because of the spike uh, in gas prices, which has been a result of US and British pressure uh, creating policy regarding embargoing Russia, et cetera. Put two and two together. I think anybody, you don't need a PhD to see what's actually going on here. This is basically a racket. Well, indeed, and uh, I think your your time scales are bang on because she announced yesterday that she was looking for the UK to become a net energy exporter by 2040. So uh, I think you're you're bang on the money, as I say. So uh, what about the European Union then? European Union. So <laughs> I wonder. Uh, we always wondered, Mike uh, and everybody, about the timing of Brexit. Why the rush to get out of Europe? Why so quick? Well, you're starting to see the reason why. Now, all of this has been on the cards uh, for a very long time. So now Ursula von der Leyen's taken the podium uh, and she's had a few things to say. We'll break down. This is an extraordinary development, you know, in terms of uh, breaking events. This is game changing uh, for people uh, of all economic strata. Let's listen to the first a bit of well, well, hold on. Before we'll, we before we get on to Ursula, I think you had a clip uh, of, of some... Uh, uh, EU protests. Oh, that's right. Yes, thank you. Um, so there are, have been protests. Uh, we'll we'll run this now. The Lynn, uh, initially. Uh, so we have in set thousands, tens of thousands of people come out in the street against NATO involvement in Ukraine, against sanctions against Russia, protesting the cost of living. This these scenes are from Prague and France as well. So those are three uh, major EU hubs there: Prague, Paris, and Berlin where there's been protests against the cost of living, against the proxy war in Ukraine, and against NATO's sort of uh, blundering policies. Okay, so th there is people waking up. And what's interesting about these protests, 
is that you have the right and the left coming together. Or as the mainstream media are portraying this as the far right and the far left, literally the communists are out there with the National Front. Uh, at least that was the case in Czech Republic. So that's very interesting. So what does that mean? This issue transcends party politics and nothing scares the establishment more than that because then the, the evil P word starts popping up, which is populism. Um, so you're going to see some very interesting things happening now as a result of this current situation as people see through uh, the rhetoric and all the kind of uh, smoke and mirrors that are going on right now uh, with the, the super bureaucracies. Okay, so let's uh, have a look at that first uh, von der Leyen clip then. So good afternoon. It is now time for the consumers to benefit from the low costs of low carbon sources like, for example, the renewables, we will propose to rechannel these unexpected profits. We channel them to the member states so that the member states can support the vulnerable households and vulnerable companies. We all know that our sanctions are deeply grinding into the Russian economy with a heavy negative impact. But Putin is partially buffering through fossil fuel revenues. So here the objective is we must cut Russia's revenues, which Putin uses to finance his atrocious war in Ukraine. So is this some kind of windfall tax she's talking about here? This is something, of course, that the United Kingdom has decided against, at, the, at least in the meantime. I wouldn't call it a windfall tax. I think this is, a lot of this is rhetoric. First of all, she's pumping up this, uh, this false idea that uh, the sanctions are somehow destroying the Russian economy when quite clearly, look at the people on the streets in those cities we just showed, um, it's having a more of a negative impact on the European economy. They're talking about mandatory rationing here. The windfall she's talking about channeling the unexpected profits of green energy, because uh, she's trying to uh, put forward the case that renewables have a lower production cost, no exploration and so forth, like they're cheap, they're easy, and they're going to have more of a profit margin. And then we're going to rechannel those profits to the member states uh, for them to do whatever they want to do with those profits, apparently to save the world uh, in your local town or city in Europe. But that's not actually what's going to happen. It's, a lot of this is pie in the sky. This is like blue sky thinking. And so she's putting these statements out. They're not really grounded in reality or economics or the reality of, uh, of, of energy. Uh, and the economics of it. So she's basically saying, theoretically, theoretically, there's going to be this big windfall from renewables. Okay, a lot of this is rhetoric. And then we're going to take that big windfall and we're going to redistribute the wealth to everyone. So she's kind of going EU super bureaucratic collectivism on a corporate level. Um, if this actually comes off or anything near what she's saying in the future, uh, I'd be very surprised because it seems like this is just to get from A to B, these types of statements, not grounded in reality at all, in my opinion. Um, okay, so uh, so we have a graphic here, Patrick, uh, which you've headlined uh, energy debacle. So I presume you're, this is just uh, uh, listing the, the, the main features. Yeah, this is just a quick summary. So a cap on revenue of energy firms or a cap on profit. They're a little bit vague as to what this actually is. How is this actually going to happen? How can you prof, how can you put caps 
um, on the profit or the revenue of these countries? Is she going to put a cap and then anything, any other revenue that comes in is going to get creamed off the top by Brussels and then redistributed uh, to member states? It's unclear how that mechanism, this is new territory. This is like a fusion of super bureaucratic state um, apparatus and, and, and private industry and so forth. So this is new territory. I don't, I don't know myself or I can't see how this is actually going to happen. This is like short of a full takeover of the energy industry. Now EDF in France is the biggest provider in Britain, by the way, is a French fully state-owned energy company, EDF, the biggest provider in Britain, Brexit, right? So the next is she's proposing a solidarity contribution fund from firms to vulnerable households. So she's saying all the power firms, energy firms have to chip in to a quote, solidarity fund to alleviate the pain and suffering of vulnerable people in member states. How exactly is that going to work and how are you gonna distribute that? And what's the regularity of this considering the fluctuation of energy costs in this crazy free floating wholesale market, which itself is the reason for the spike in prices along with uh, crazy sanctions policies and insane uh, zero carbon uh, and green policies that have built up over the years to create this perfect storm. She's not doing anything or addressing the root cause of the problem, which is the crazy volatile pricing uh, on the wholesale markets and it's completely unregulated. And it didn't exist uh, before 20 years ago. This isn't one of the big problems. The other is she's calling for a liquidity bailout fund, a liquidity bailout fund, but it's unclear how that bailout would be distributed. Is this for the energy firms? Um, is this you know, wanting to build up a fund to bail out the energy firms uh, when, it, when they're lean, but then cream off the top when they're uh, taking too many profits? Now, the energy industry is complaining because, as you know, Mike, the retail companies have been uh, strangled uh, during the lean times, uh, barely able to cope. Uh, businesses, energy firms are closing, we're closing down. Uh, and then with the spike in prices, what they're doing is making up uh, for the lost money in previous years. That was the case with oil companies as well, when the price of oil per barrel tanked uh, a few years ago, and they had to make, make hay uh, while it was rising. And so the, you have bureaucrats um, attacking the energy firms or the oil companies or the gas companies or whatever, um, because basically of the fluctuations in the market, this isn't really workable. Rechanneling profits from renewals to member states, as we mentioned before, and EU price cap on Russian oil and gas. How exactly is that going to work? They've already reduced their consumption of Russian oil and gas. What's left, you know, 10 or 15%, they're saying, oh, we're gonna put a price cap on that. All that's gonna do is raise the price of oil and gas uh, from other sources because they're what they're doing is they're choking off the market for all available supplies by putting a price cap on Russian uh, gas and oil. And where's that price cap? Is it going to fluctuate? Is it going to go up and down as the price fluctuates? They're not uh, forthcoming with any details on any of this. So it's really hard to see where the reality is uh, and where the fantasy is. It's hard to know where those two things start and finish. Okay, so we've got a, we've got a second uh, clip from Ursula then. This one is um, quite, quite spectacular. Let's go ahead.
What has changed over the summer because of the elements I was just mentioning, that we see there's a global scarcity of energy. So whatever we do, one thing is for sure, we have to save electricity, but we have to save it in a smart way. If you look at the costs of electricity, there are peak demands. And this is what is expensive, because in these peak demands, the expensive gas comes into the market. So what we have to do is flatten the curve and uh, avoid the peak demands. We will propose a mandatory target for reducing electricity use at peak hours, and we will work very closely with the member states to achieve this. I don't believe that, Patrick. <laughs> so global scarcity of energy. Um, is that true? Is that actually true? Uh, no, it's not true. There's no global scarcity of energy. There's a plenty of energy available. The scarcity is she doesn't like the sources uh, of the available energy, i.e. the world's largest combined oil and gas producer, which is right next to store to Europe, which is Russia. So this is completely disingenuous by Ursula von der Leyen, by the EU bureaucrats. Um, they're not, they have no leg to stand on, on this statement. Mandatory rationing during peak hours, okay? That, how is that going to fly uh, Europe-wide? It's very difficult to say. Is that actually possible? Is that workable with the sort of huge baseload of energy required from a modern European city, uh, right from the north of Europe right down to the very southern tip? It's really not workable. This is normal fare if you're in Lebanon or if you're in Syria or some other countries that are choked off of, of their energy supplies and the economies or basket cases due to sanctions and so forth over the years. But for Europe, how is that actually going to work? I don't personally believe that they're going to be able to do that. Flattening the curve, using the language of COVID to avoid peak demand hours. Okay, So again, they're using the, the COVID language here. So you can, you can use your imagination of where that's going to head. Um, blaming the effects of climate change. So she's blaming the effects of climate change, uh, saying that this is the reason for record-breaking costs. Um, I don't see how that makes any sense at all. So it's just in injecting the climate rhetoric in there. All the politicians are doing this. They'll add climate in at the end as a sort of spice on top. So none of this really corresponds to reality very much. And it's kind of disturbing because when you get government uh, intervening at this level in something as fundamental and basic as energy, this is a recipe for disaster on so many different levels for industry, for people living uh, within the EU. And I, I dare say the UK will probably be mimicking or trying to adopt some of these same talking points and perhaps some of these same policies. Um, so let's just remind ourselves from 2021 here, uh, The Guardian, uh, and the headline was global lockdown every two years needed to meet Paris CO2 goals. That's right. You know, so that's the flatten the curve language uh, that van der Leyen's uh, injected in there. And then put this into context, just a couple of weeks ago, Emmanuel Macron uh, made this famous speech about the end of abundance. He's saying that the days of abundance are over. And this was a, a kind of a benchmarks speech by Macron. So there's a ma another major European power um, that's basically framing the situation 
in that there's scarcity. We need to be prepared to pay through the nose. If you can't afford to pay through the nose, the state will bail out the energy companies and they'll bail you out um, as well. And also note that there are serious cap, uh, price caps in France to protect consumers. And one of the reasons for that, although they are paying more now in France than they were a few years ago, but there are some checks and balances on the consumer side because of the yellow vest protests. The government is very cognizant, the Macron government, not super popular, very cognizant of the reality of uh, a, a mass uprising, social unrest, if they push people too far, if they squeeze people too far with costs. So EDF is now fully nationalized uh, in France, and the, also you have price caps. So, But they're still going to have to uh, uh, take on debt. They're still going to have to run up debt because somebody has to pay for all the subsidies and the bailouts, and it's going to be in the form of uh, budget deficits and borrowing on the part of the government. I think it's probably gonna be the same situation in the UK. And then you have politicians calling this anti-inflationary uh, emergency measures, when in fact, that the, the actual policy is inflationary. It will lead to inflation in the same way that printing up hundreds of billions of pounds or euros uh, created this inflationary bubble because of COVID-19. It's all this crisis reaction, printing up money. Uh, we need to do something, we're here to save you. Uh, we're going to, and then they claim that they're going to stop inflation by creating inflation. Same in the United States as well. Yes, indeed. Well, let's uh, move to the United States and California. What's the situation there with energy? Well, it's the same sort of thing going on. Uh, it, California's uh, basically taking uh, a leaf out of Ursula von der Leyen's uh, playbook. Uh, Gavin Newsom, who's uh, probably canvassing at the moment, really for the Democratic. A nomination in 2024. He's the governor of California. Brutal lockdowns uh, in California and COVID measures, vaccine mandates, and things like this. Here he is basically telling California this is the largest, most wealthiest state in the union. Um, then you're going to have to do your part. We, we came together under COVID to fight the virus, and now we're going to have to come together to save the grid, to save the grid from being overwhelmed listen to this, it's quite extraordinary. Californians, you've stepped up to help in a big way to keep the lights on so far, but we're heading, we're heading to the worst part of this heat wave and the risk for outages is real and it's immediate. These triple digit temperatures throughout much of our state are, are leading, not surprisingly, to record demand on the energy grid. Everyone has to do their part to help step up for just a few more days. Individuals, the state, industries, business, all doing their part to help reduce strain on the grid. Now, here's specifically what you can do. In the early morning hours, particularly tomorrow and the next day or so, pre-cool your home. Run your air conditioning earlier in the day when more power is available. And we encourage you to close your windows and blinds to keep your home cool as well. And today and tomorrow afternoon after 4 p.m., in particular 4 p.m., please turn your thermostat up to 78 degrees or higher and avoid to the extent possible using any really large appliances. You can visit flexalert.org to learn more about what you can do. Californians, you've rallied before and we can do it again. Keep it up. I mean, this really is the COVID script rehashed. So you, to protect the grid. So if, if, you're, if you've got your air conditioning turned up too high during the heat wave at peak hours, 
you're 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 putting the grid at, at threat you're you're going to kill the grid just like if you're not vaccinated or you're out during running around without a mask that you could kill granny so save granny with covid save the grid uh with this new energy crisis okay so this is great reset writ large they're prepping the population california is the biggest most influential state uh, and so this is basically prepping the scene there is no energy shortage um, in america it depends what energy you're talking about if you're going to run the grid on renewables there's going to be a constant uh, shortage it's going to be a perennial shortage you can't run uh, you can't power major cities on solar wind and wood chips okay so there is plenty of oil and gas and uh, other forms of energy california has nuclear um, as well they have hydro they've got all sorts of potential sources of energy um, so newsom is um kind of again uh trying to marshal this whole uh we're in a we're in a major climate crisis he didn't say climate change explicitly without probably becoming in other speeches but it is pretty amazing so getting people to mobilize to save the grid exactly the same as ursula van der Leyen is basically saying yeah uh, we got a little uh cartoon here uh yeah so the the irony here is that there, newsom is pushing everybody to get onto electric vehicles in california ditch their combustion engines um but they you won't be able to power your electric vehicle or your tesla so that's the irony of this it the, the whole thing isn't adding up really quickly now yes okay well uh related to the united states but uh as much about liz truss uh let's uh uh, bring uh, the lovely Karine Jean-Pierre on screen. Uh, and uh, of course, she is Biden's spokeswoman. Uh, and she was basically, uh, well, suggesting that perhaps Britain and the United States special relationship may be a bit at risk, all as a result of the uh, uh, Northern Ireland Protocol. So this is uh, all about uh, making sure that uh, the US keeps pressure on uh, for the UK to uh, stay within the EU as much as possible. And certainly if you speak to anybody in the, uh, particularly farmers in uh, the uh, EU, uh, sorry, in Northern Ireland, they will tell you that Brexit uh, does not exist. Um, so anyway, I just thought that was an interesting little intervention there from the Biden uh, regime. Uh, okay, let's move on very quickly. Um, I just wanted to highlight this uh, a tweet that was pushed out and quite a number of people talking about this on uh, Wednesday. Uh, so exclusive, this is Harry Cole, who's the political editor of The Sun. Uh, exclusive cabinet agreed to shelve Rab's British Bill of Rights designed to protect against meddling uh, European Convention on Human Rights in Strasbourg, the Sun can reveal. It was due back in the Commons next week. Uh, well, it was interesting because this morning uh, the uh, parliamentary website updated uh, the Bill of Rights bill uh, page. Um, and this is the only bill that was updated today. So has it been scrapped or has it not? I think it's too early to say. Uh, certainly there hasn't been any official announcement. Um, but then the question is whether Parliament is going to be sitting or not. Now, there is supposed to be a suspension of Parliament for 10 days because of the passing of the Queen. Um, but uh, it's not clear whether that's uh, 10 days from now or whether it's 10 days, uh, 10 sitting days, which would mean that they wouldn't be back until October the 17th. So certainly the Bill of Rights isn't going for a second uh, reading on uh, Monday, as was planned. But uh, whether it's been shelved is too early to say. Uh, it's been redubbed the Removal of Rights Bill by many uh, organizations 
who are extremely concerned about it. And I'll just remind everybody of the number of bills that are waiting uh, in the wings. So the loss of the uh, new British Bill of Rights, uh, although the term British has been dropped from it, perhaps because of what uh, Alex was talking about earlier, that the union is at risk, uh, but the word British has been removed from it. Nonetheless, the removal of that particular bill from this list of bills it wouldn't make a huge amount of difference to the overall effect of what's coming in in terms of legislation in this coming government. Okay, let's uh, move on. If you like the UK column and you'd like to support us, uh, then please head over to uh, community.ukcolumn.org. There are options to help us out there, or you can pick something up at the uh, UK column shop. But in any case, if you do see anything on the various platforms, uh, please do share it as far and wide as you possibly can. So uh, let me welcome Vanessa back to the programme. And Vanessa, um, a number of weeks ago, we were talking about the uh, situation in China with respect to the Uyghurs in Xinjiang. Um, and mm -hmm. uh, at the time, uh, the uh, UN's representative uh, had gone to for a visit and actually gave quite a positive uh, response. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, basically we talked about um, the fact that the majority of uh, the organizations and analysts and researchers that are producing the propaganda against China as regards Xinjiang are either funded by the US State Department or they were organizations like Victims of Communism that were set up with actual founders that had uh, Nazi roots um, after the Second World War and then also now have links to the Pentagon and to the State Department. So there is nothing independent coming out uh, for Western consumption regarding the situation in Xinjiang. <laughs> so as you rightly pointed out, um, in uh, May, uh, Michelle Bachelet, the human rights chief for um, the OHCHR, the Commission for Human Rights, the Office of the High Commission for Human Rights, um, went to Xinjiang uh, for a visit that uh, she had been planning for some time. Um, today, uh, so how many months after uh, June, July, August, the end of August, the 31st of August, the final assessment of human rights uh, concerns in the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region, notice they call it the Autonomous Region, very similar to what they've done with the Kurdish separatist uh, illegal separate region uh, in the northeast of Syria, in the People's Republic of China. <clears throat> Why did this report take so long to come out from when Michelle actually uh, visited Xinjiang? Well, let's have a look. So let's have a look at um, the actual United Nations UN News report that was published in May 2022. What is the headline? UN rights chief concludes China trip with a promise of improved relations. Very optimistic, very positive. Let's look at how that's changed. Uh, on the 31st of August 2022, the UN news, China responsible for serious human rights violations in Xinjiang province, UN human rights reports. So what happened between May and August of this year? <clears throat> Let's look at what uh, Michelle Bachelet said back in May 2022, uh, again in the UN news. During her mission, uh, Ms. Bachelet spoke with a range of government officials, several civil society organizations, academics and community and religious leaders, 
In addition, she met several organizations online ahead of the visit on issues relating to Xinjiang province, Tibet, Hong Kong, and other parts of China. In Xinjiang, home to the Muslim Uyghur minority, Ms. Bashle raised questions and concerns about the application of counterterrorism and de-radicalization measures. So note, she, she recognizes and acknowledges that China is combating terrorism and radicalization and their broad application and encouraged the government to undertake a review of all counterterrorism and de-radicalization policies, fairly reasonable, to ensure that they fully comply with international human rights standards and are not applied in an arbitrary and discriminatory way. Perfectly reasonable. How did uh, the Western press respond to this? Uh, it, it was an absolute uh, witch hunt. Michelle Bachelet's, this is in foreign policy, Michelle Bachelet's failed Xinjiang trip has tainted her entire, her whole legacy. So because Bachelet communicated with Chinese officials, Chinese organizations, um, officials working in Xinjiang province, she visited the province, her report is to be demonized because it didn't follow the genocide rules in the West regarding China's uh, record in Xinjiang. The foreign, uh, foreign policy report goes on. Her press statement was Orwellian. She spoke at length of universal health care and almost universal unemployment insurance and commended China for promoting gender equality, but said nothing of well-documented. I refer you back to the fact that those uh, well-documented records criminalizing China are coming predominantly from the US State Department um, and other uh, compromised organizations. And systematic sexual violence, forced sterilization, forced abortions, human trafficking, torture, crimes against humanity, and genocide. That all comes under the umbrella of people like Adrian Zentz and victims of communism. She spoke of labor rights, but stayed silent about rampant slave labor. And unfathomably, she praised Chinese business for embracing human rights standards while they continue to use forced labor in their production lines and supply chains. Most bizarre was her reference to meeting civil society organizations, academics and community and religious leaders. I wonder whom they would have been given that most civil society groups in China have been shut down, most academics have been shut up, and many religious and community leaders have been locked up. However, the human rights chief still managed to speak to them. What this comes down to is the West were not happy with her report from Xinjiang. So I come back to the UN News report um, that was published on the 31st of August, 2022. As I say, look at the change in headline, but the photo is the same, also note that. Um, so the first um, paragraph in the report, a long-awaited report by the Office of the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights into what China refers to as the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region has concluded that serious human rights violations against the Uyghur and other predominantly Muslim communities have been committed. Now that, even in this report from the UN News, they hark back to Bachelet's May mission. Where does it mention here that there are human rights abuses clearly visible during her visit? So we go through it again. During her mission, she spoke with a range of officials, et cetera, et cetera. 
um, at the end of her visit while expressing concern over issues relating to Xinjiang, uh, Tibet, Hong Kong, human rights defenders and labor rights, she praised China's tremendous achievements in alleviating poverty and eradicating extreme poverty 10 years ahead of its target date. A number of other developments in the country were welcomed by Ms. Bachelet, including legislation that improves protection for women's rights and work being done by NGOs to advance the rights of LGBTI people, people with disabilities and older people. She underscored the important role that China has to play at a regional and multilateral level and noted that everyone she met on her visit from government officials and all the others demonstrated a sincere willingness to make progress to make progress on the promotion and protection of human rights for all. So what happened in these four months? I mean, clearly this report does not reflect what the human rights chief had actually reported after her visit on China. She produced a very balanced statement. She produced um, a very positive statement and, and she spoke about multilateralism but now what's happening we're being telescoped back down into this demonization of China what is interesting the uh, official report was published about reports vary but between 10 and 5 minutes before Michelle Bachelet actually officially left her position so one can speculate did she ask for this report to be held back until she had actually left because she disagreed um, with some of the findings in that report. We have seen that before, of course, with Syria and the chemical weapons attacks and the corrupted OPCW report and um, the, the dissenting OPCW uh, inspectors. So I think we can reasonably ask that question. She also mentioned that she had received a letter signed by countries including North Korea, Venezuela and Cuba, so in the non-aligned resistance access to um, the US-UK coalition of um, unipolarity, um, <coughs> um, requesting the non-publication of this report on China's treatment of Uyghurs in Xinjiang. Again, we have to speculate, were they asking for this because they disagreed with the findings? Um, let's look at how basically the usual suspects responded to this report. Human Rights Watch immediately back to default position. UN Human Rights Chief report on Xinjiang, China says, it doesn't say that actually, authorities, authorities, abuses authorities, yeah. may, sorry, uh, may, cons may constitute international crimes, in particular crimes against humanity. So, so we're right back that one of the biggest complaints on Twitter in particular from various human rights advocates was that the word genocide had not been used. So the report lays bare China's sweeping rights abuses, says Sophie from Human Rights Watch. Um, coming on to Laura Haas, she's the campaign director at various um, human rights uh, advocacy groups. Um, it's noted on their global Magnitsky. We won't get into that, but obviously she's heavily invested in US State Department narratives targeting sovereign nations. So what does she say? While hoping M. Bachelet's Xinjiang report, so this is just before this was in June, if and when published, is not the CCP 
approved whitewash, her disgraceful visit to China was, here's a useful reminder of recent statement from UN independent human rights experts, we will settle for nothing less than unhindered access to China. Australian human rights advocate Justine Nolan released in her last minutes in the job M. Bachelet says China may have committed crimes against humanity in Xinjiang. Here we go to the crux. Businesses, business still operating in China now have no plausible deniability. So here is another prong of um, the, the Western weaponization of this against China, that now they will start to put pressure on um, Western trade, Western businesses that are operating inside China because they can't, they, they will effectively be sanctioned. The Guardian runs with, and of course the BBC does, and, and all the other usual suspects, as I said. China's treatment of Uyghurs may be a crime against humanity, says UN human rights chief. What does Liz Truss say? This report provides new evidence of the appalling extent of China's efforts to silence and repress Uyghurs and other minorities in Xinjiang, including evidence that may amount to crimes against humanity. This includes arbitrary detention. Notice the repetition of terms here. This includes arbitrary detention, torture, sexual and gender-based violence, violations of reproductive rights and the destruction of religious sites. Verbatim. In response, the UK has rightly led international efforts to hold China to account. We presume that means uh, sanctions at some point. We will, uh, and, going, and more going forward, sorry. We will continue to act with our international partners to increase the pressure on China to immediately cease its appalling human rights violations in Xinjiang and release those unjustly detained. Now, I have to say, I skimmed through the report, 48 pages of it, the majority of the information in there comes from exactly the same players that we exposed in May 2022, as I said, from the US State Department, from uh, Adrian Zantz and other um, organizations affiliated to, to Western regimes targeting China. What did China say in response to this? And I actually urge everybody to read this. It's labeled as Annex A on the, um, on the actual report itself. And it is a very detailed um, counter evidence report from China. I think that's also around 30 pages. Very detailed and it's very interesting and it's worth reading. So what does China say? China firmly opposes the release of the so-called assessment of the human rights situation in Xinjiang. This so-called assessment runs counter to the mandate of the Human Rights Commission and ignores the human rights achievements made together by people of all ethnic groups in Xinjiang and the devastating damage caused by terrorism and, ugh, sorry, and extremism to the human rights of people of all ethnic groups in Xinjiang. Very important point. Based on the disinformation and lies fabricated by anti-China forces, as I've said, and out of presumption of guilt, the so-called assessment distorts China's laws and policies, wantonly smears and slanders China, and interferes in China's internal affairs, which violates principles including dialogue and cooperation and non-politicization in the field of human rights, and also undermines the credibility of the Office of the High Commission of Human Rights. 
the Chinese government pursuing a people-centered approach upholds that living a happy life is the primary human right and has embarked on a human rights development path which conforms to the trend of the times and suits uh, the Human Rights Commission. So that's a very strong um, statement by China to counter this report. And as I would, again, highly recommend that people go and read the full uh, report from uh, China itself on this. But, you know, we've seen this time and time again, this manipulation of facts. Michelle Bachelet came back with a very positive report. She was furthering international relations with China. She did her job as a human. She's not an investigator. She didn't go there on an investigation. She went there to build bridges with China, and she did that. Now those bridges have been burned by the same players that have been criminalizing and demonizing and preparing for intervention in China for years. Right. Well, I want to get a little bit of comment from Alex and uh, Patrick in a second, but before I do, um, I think it's important just to, to understand this uh, claim of radicalization and uh, terrorism in the Uyghur population. Mm -hmm. Can you just remind everybody or people that haven't come across uh, this story before, uh, the part that the Uyghurs yeah. played in Afghanistan and in Syria? Well, the Uyghurs were weaponized, as you said, in Afghanistan. In Syria right now, in the northwest, we have, there are varying estimates, but between 10 and 20,000 Uyghur extremists in Idlib alongside Al-Qaeda. And they have carried out atrocities against Syrian civilians here. But the Uyghurs have also carried out many uh, terrorist attacks targeting civilians in China, in the mainland itself, but also in Xinjiang. So the fact that China is combating radicalization and extremism is a fact. And, and it's also a fact that has been admitted pre-2016 by Western media. It's not something that has, that has you know, never been mentioned before, very much like Nazism uh, in Ukraine. Of course, now there, there are no Nazis, but if you go back to 2016, they very clearly existed. Yes. Uh, Alex, what are your thoughts on this? I'll try to give viewers the biggest picture. One has compassion with anyone who is persecuted their culture or religion, but one has to see which of these cause celebre are ignored by the likes of the BBC and the NGOs favoured by the West, and which of them are used to butter us up for years. Now, the BBC for many years has been uh, preparing us for this idea of poor Uyghurs uniquely persecuted. There was a parallel period in the 90s when we were told by the BBC and the mainstream press that the Kurds were almost uniquely oppressed. Uh, Eurasia, particularly the vaguely speaking Turkic belt of countries between Greek, Greece and China through the middle of Asia, is an area where a great deal of suffering and injustice has been perpetrated by many people on others, let alone states. And it's always the question, which of them get the attention? Uh, last month, uh, I released a podcast recorded the previous month in Armenia with Karnik Sarkisyan, uh, part of my Eastern Approaches podcast series, uh, perhaps most easily found on soundcloud.com slash UK column, where we went into the example of the Armenians. In this case, it was uh, trying to provoke 
the sympathies of the Armenians, Christian co-religionists in Britain and France, that was the tool. But as Sarkisian brings to the fore there, as no other could, because he used to be the prime minister of the government in exile of Western Armenia, which was stolen by Turkey after the First World War, he says the idea was to keep the plight of these people, and this could be the Uyghurs in this case, who happened to be Muslim, but a similar presentation going on. The plight was to be kept on the boil. The name of the people group was to be kept on people's lips, but on no account was there to be any talk of statehood. Now, in the same interwar period, there was such a thing as East Turkestan. But again, nobody who is taking the more anti-Chinese view historically, to the extent they can justify that in Central Asia, you can a little, nobody is saying, let's agitate for East Turkestan. Oh, no, no. It's got to be uh, basically uh, the Western countries permanently angling or intervention, or at the very least, right to protect style uh, bashing of China and Russia in the name of these this people group. And I'm afraid there's not a single people group in that belt from the Caucasus eastward, the Balkans eastwards, really, that hasn't been misused in this way. And um, I would just take a you know more general zoom out in the last thing I say, which is that I have tried hard to look into the plight of the Uyghurs. I've attended some quite high level meetings and, and occasions about it, but never have my, has my intuition told me or my, my senses what I can observe in the room. Never have I found an unfiltered presentation of the plight of the Uyghurs. There has always been a Western intelligence handler, sometimes literally in the room, telling the Uyghurs or their, their chosen mouthpieces what to say to the Westerners. So I cannot discount claims of persecution, but I'm afraid I can't take any of it at face value either. Yeah. Okay. Thank you for that, Alex. Uh, Patrick, have you any thoughts? Yeah. For, firstly, I'll just say, just be realistic about it. China has a huge um, problem uh, in sort of managing uh, some of its far-flung territories. Uh, China, as you know, is mostly homogenous um, on its eastern seaboard or its eastern side, but on the far-reaching territories like that, uh, multi-ethnic, multi-religious, it's, it's not easy. It's a big challenge. Uh, for China, let's not uh, kid ourselves there. However, the um, the, the the East Turkestan uh, Party, or as Alex pointed out, or it's now the uh, Turkestan Islamic Party or Independence Movement. Um, this is basically the soft underbelly for the West. This isn't great. This is like Great Game 1.0. Um, so the the West, the, the Anglo-American Axis, uh, whatever you want to call it. Uh, sees that as China's weak point. They're, they'll keep pressing on it. Um, coincidentally, Erdogan views these people as part of the uh, Turk, uh, the Turkish, uh, the, the bigger Turkish family or the ethnic, uh, the wider ethnic Turkish um, uh, conclave. And so this is why there was a very successful rat line uh, sending these extremist fighters into Syria via different uh, places like Bangkok, Indonesia, then into Turkey through different ports. He even issued passports um, to these people, Turkish passports, um, so made it very easy. So that that was one of the things that greased the tracks for that uh, terrorist insurgency um, in Syria, the fact that Turkey and Erdogan views them as their sort of cousins or part of their family. Um, but the other thing, so this is very much, what, what you see here is very much like the MEK um, with, with Iran. Uh, so the West are uh, pumping up this with the Uyghur diaspora based in Paris, uh, based in Europe, um, and the, all these various satellite events for independence. So they're prominent. The Western 
uh, intelligence operatives or the State Department or, or congressmen, senators, uh, French MPs, or to help liberate, just uh, cooperate with us uh, in, you know, us in public relations fashion. And they do the same thing with the MEK. They're selling a dream um, to these people, and this is what fuels the radical um, subterfuge um, as well that we, uh, Vanessa, uh, you spoke about before. So don't be fooled by what you're seeing. This is actually um, a, a running policy to disrupt the Chinese Belt and Road development to bring Europe together with Asia in some kind of economic cooperative zone. Okay, thank you for that, Patrick. Okay, let's uh, let's uh, end by going back to the United States and the midterms. What's the what's the latest? Uh, the, the midterms are starting to heat up now. We're we're just 60, 60 days or so, just over sixty days uh, away from this election. A lot of people are saying this is going to be the most consequential election since the last most consequential election. Um, so, but Joe Biden is um, struggling. He's slipping. Uh, there is uh, a lot of discussion afoot that he's going to be blamed um, if the uh, Democrats lose the House. Um, then this is going to open the gates for lots of impeachment, congressional hearings, Hunter Biden hearings, etc. It's going to be an absolute disaster if this comes to pass. So we think we've got an image of Joe there looking slightly puzzled, doesn't quite know uh, what's going on. So you've got Biden's been coming out with these various angry speeches. They don't make any sense from a public relations point of view. People are speculating what's going on. Why are they putting the president, why his own handlers making him look like such a demon, like a sort of uh, Mussolini type character in this past week. Here, here's just a highlight reel of Joe slightly um, out of sorts, uh, cognitively speaking, but go ahead. Tell me how you do that. I, I understand it. I mean, it's clear in its face. You're accurate. But how in making the case of the freedom men have, what do you do to other than to sort of embarrass men into getting into the, into the argument and voting the right way on this issue? If we elect two more senators, we keep the House and Democrats, we're going to get a lot of unfinished business. We're going to get done. I, you probably wouldn't understand what he just said, but we, we, we'll, put, we'll lay the text out for you here. Um, what Joe said here is if we get elected two more senators, we keep the House in Democrats. We're going to um, get a lot of unfinished business. We're going to get done, uh, says the current uh, president. So he's not all there. So angry Joe's been wheeled out. They're pushing the policies that are not very popular, like vaccines, for instance. Here's the latest. So this is what the this White House is doing. They think that these are popular policies. They're really pushing hard right now on vaccinations for the new COVID booster, which is the Omicron booster, supposedly. And they want to push this in tandem with the flu shot. Fauci's been deployed. He's doing the rounds. He's putting out PSAs saying you need to get an annual shot now. The cadence of your vaccinations needs to be regular and so forth to save us. Because apparently... According to the government, we're still in a pandemic. Believe it or not, we're still, they haven't officially announced that the pandemic is over. So this is kind of like the endless 
pandemic. And the Democrats believe this is a good strategy, apparently, for the midterms. They think they can double down on this, that they have good approval ratings on vaccinations, on COVID policies. So they're basically starting to push more of it um, in the run-up um, to the midterm elections. And here's Biden's science team uh, in their sort of public meeting recently. And they're saying, not only is it your duty, but this is sort of um, uh, a sort of a, God, a God-given directive here that you need to get your COVID and your flu shots together. But uh, roll this, this is quite striking. The good news is you can get both your flu shot and COVID shot at the same time. It's actually a good idea. I really believe this is why God gave us two arms, one for the flu shot and the other one for the COVID shot. Okay. I don't know what to say about that. That's just left me speechless and many people speechless. Believe it or not, this is what they believe is their best play uh, going into the midterms. Uh, and so, I mean, is there any danger of Biden becoming uh, more coherent as the weeks go on? No, I don't think so. I don't think so. I, I think, honestly, it seems like his own party is setting him up for a fall and possibly an exit stage left uh, before uh, January 23rd rolls around and they flip um, the, the, all the elections and change, change hands and so forth. So it, it, I think Biden's going to be shuffled out. He will be blamed. He'll be scapegoated. He'll, they'll say he was too divisive. His own party will throw him under the bus. It's what it looks like it's happening right now. They're paving the way for a, a changing of the guard um, in Washington. Who's going to fill those positions, president and vice president? Um, it remains to be seen, but there's a, a number of people that could very well fill those roles. Um, is that, is that why they had... Or- is that why they had uh, Barack and Michelle in visiting the White House a couple of days ago, get people used to them back in that particular location? Exactly, exactly. So that uh, so Michelle Obama's canvassing for a 2024 presidential run, as is Gavin Newsom. Um, so where does Barack Obama fit in this? He certainly would like to get back um, in the White House. And I will say that there's probably, there is a chance that he w- he could angle his way back in the White House for the final two years of the Biden term. Um, I don't know if that's going to be as vice president or as president, but constitutionally he can serve two more years. So this would be a great uh, shot in the arm for the Democratic uh, media machine. A lot of excitement. People be dancing in the streets. Imagine if an Obama presidency uh, returns for the final two years. It's sort of a warm-up act for the 2024 elections, and they think they could ride that wave of excitement uh, with another victory in 2024. However, you'd have to get rid of Kamala Harris um, to make that happen. Um, so that's why th- that scenario is slightly tricky. Um, yeah. So other, other, otherwise, it would be uh, Biden out, Kamala into the lead position uh, for the final two years. Uh, and then a, a, a VP would be appointed. That could be Barack Obama as a VP, or it could be Hillary Clinton, or someone like this. So it would be uh, not, not, this is not uh, wild speculation. This, this could happen. Yeah. Okay. Brilliant. Thank you very much for that, Patrick. So thanks to uh, Alex, to Patrick and Vanessa for joining us today. We're out of time now. Uh, we'll be back in a few minutes for uh, some extra. Uh, I hope everybody that's on the uh, UK Column live stream will stay for that. And otherwise, uh, everybody have a great weekend and we'll see you again at 1pm as usual on Monday. Bye-bye.